interested in the sort of friendship which really is what you've just said. It's an exchange of selves, of vulnerabilities, of perceptions, of loves, of course, of passions. And it's in words, although it doesn't have to be every moment in words. But in order to have that, you must be worth befriending, mustn't you? G'day, and welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happier, healthier, and more ethical life. Our society puts a lot of emphasis on smarts, but not enough on wisdom. So this podcast seeks out wise people who can share their insights on passion, grit, love, and empathy. We'll discuss everything from sport to parenting, and hear the stories of some of the world's wisest souls. If you enjoy the podcast, let your friends know so they can share the insights. Now, let's dive in to today's conversation. Robert Desai is one of Australia's leading writers and thinkers. He hosted books and writing on ABC Radio from 1985 to 1995, and has since written more than a dozen books. He's written novels, edited collections, uh, non-fiction works, and a number of autobiographical volumes. Uh, born in Sydney, uh, Robert never knew his father, who was killed in a plane crash shortly after Robert's birth. He was adopted at a young age by Tom and Jean Jones, educated at North Sydney Boys High School and the Great Australian National University, and then worked as an academic, a translator and a radio producer before becoming a full-time writer. His best-known works include A Mother's Disgrace, Night Letters, Corfu, and so forth, Twilight of Love, and The Pleasures of Leisure, about which we spoke last time on the Good Life podcast. His new book is The Time of Our Lives, which is about ageing and an ageing well. Robert, thanks so much for joining us back again on the Good Life podcast. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. So there's this... Um, Genre I've noticed a little bit uh, lately of uh, of books written by uh, great writers who are absolutely on their deathbeds. Uh, I think of Oliver Sacks' Everything in Its Place or Christopher Hitchens' book Mortality. Um, but yours is uh, is clearly not on the deathbed. You're uh, you're still uh, still bouncing around, and and yet it sort of it has a has a feel of a final book about it. This this isn't your last book, is it? Well, I hope not. I'm a bit disconcerted actually by your saying that I don't think that it's my last book. I think that once I've absorbed the reaction to this book, I will want to write again. But I'm not a very productive writer. I mean, it takes me several years, actually, to become impassioned about something. And unless I have some sort of passion to put into words something I've been feeling strongly, there really is no point in my writing. I don't do it just to fill up pages, if you see what I mean, or to make a publisher happy. Publishers are never happy. What's the, what's the strong feeling that's, uh, that's animated this one then? I suppose the strong feeling is that many people in our sort of Western society fear growing old and fear dying. And I wanted to talk about dying and growing old itself in a different way, a more positive way, perhaps look for some of the consolations of being old, because I don't know whether I'm old or not. I'm in my now late 70s, I suppose, mid to late 70s. I think there are many things that are good about being the age that I am. And I think I could even say that I'm more contented now. Happy is probably going a bit far, but I'm more contented now than I've ever been in my life. I think it is a wonderful time. I mean, there are the infirmities, there are the joints that go haywire and all that sort of thing. But there was plenty for me to talk about or to encourage my friends to talk about. You make the point that you're now less anxious about death uh, as it's drawn closer. Uh, what do you put that down to? Well, you see, oddly enough, it's been my perception that those who believe strongly in an afterlife are the ones who are most anxious about dying. 500 years ago, they had good reason to be anxious about dying because the options were rather limited and not terribly appealing. It was either an infinitude of angels and harps or it was being burnt until the end of time. 
So there was quite a lot to be anxious about. Nobody much in the West has believed in those particular narratives for a long, long time. However, there are still many amongst us who do have some kind of vague belief that once they die, there will be uh, an afterlife, there will be a continuation of something, of what nobody seems to be quite sure. Not even the Pope, I suspect, has the faintest idea of exactly what it might be that continues to go. On the other hand, in my own experience, when I was dying in hospital the last time with the heart attack, before I wrote that, that book, What Days Are For, but also in talking to my friends who do not believe in an afterlife, I don't find that anxiety. It's just not there. The emphasis is on having a good life now, on making every day as happy as possible, or I would say contented. It's a sort of release from anxiety, actually, not to believe in anything further. Although I would say if my readers wish to believe in something further, they're very welcome. It makes them happy. Go for it. Do you feel as though in some sense you've lived a better life because uh, you were diagnosed with HIV at a time when, when many thought that it might well be a death sentence uh, and then subsequently had the episode of the, the heart attack in 2011? Uh, do you think those intimations of mortality led you to, to live better? Of course they did. They were fabulous. I mean, the best thing that ever happened to me is getting HIV. But I was lucky. And I acknowledge that in this book in general, it is a lucky person writing. It is a fortunate man, a man who is loved and who is looked after and who lives in a society where more or less, all things considered, we look after each other. I acknowledge that. But yes, getting HIV was the first thing in the days when it was a death sentence that made me think, what is a good life? And ever since that happened 25 years ago, that has been my main thought. What makes a life good? And my ideas have changed little bit by little bit over the years. At the time of the heart attack, this was all reinforced. And now, as I look around me, what I learned comes back to support me at a time when the outer life contracts. And it shrinks. Of course it does. So we can't run, we can't hop, we can't go to all the places we wanted to go. We can't do all the things we always wanted to do. All sorts of things, from sex to mm, clipping our toenails. It's not quite the fun it used to be. That's true, but certain things are better. You speak in uh, The Time of Our Lives about uh, the trick being to never grow up. Uh, and you, uh, you talk about how John Cleese ascribes his creativity to his ability to remain childish uh, and to remain curious. Uh, how well have you achieved that? Yes, he uses the word childish. Um, or did he say childlike or did he say both? People use both those words, of course, in talking about this period of life. I prefer to talk about myself as never, never having quite grown up. I think it's a better way of thinking about it. I was accused of about three years ago and I got a terrible shock. I thought, is this a good thing or is it a bad thing? Is it because I'm gay? What's all this about really? Really, have I not grown up? I think it's partly true. What it means is that we don't feel as burdened with responsibility as most people do. People with children and wives and swimming pools and Volvos and things that they have to keep in good running order with mortgages. We feel that we can play refusing to come in for tea as long as we want to play, just like a kid. I don't think it's quite the same thing as childish, although I know that's a word that's used because, of course, we are not innocent, whereas children are. We are absolutely not innocent. All sorts of insults have been slung at me, but I've never been caught innocent. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I sort of know what's going on, I think. But I refuse to stop playing. In the book, I wonder to myself whether this is a particularly gay thing. And I think up to a point, gay men are in a better position to keep playing. They can permit this uh, to themselves 
in a way that people with families probably can't. I think also gay men, I really can't speak for gay women, although it's true of some gay women I know, performance is important to us. We perform different selves, often quite deftly, in different contexts. Straight people, by and large, to my observation, have a smaller range of selves to play with and are quite often mm, reluctant to play with them at all in public. So I think that's one advantage. I mean, there has to be some advantage, doesn't there, in being gay. <laughs> <laughs> so is that to do with there being less of a, uh, a fixed societal expectations on, on gay men, do you think? There's no script. That's the thing, yes. No mm, carefully articulated expectation. All sorts of possibilities for us. We can be as straight as you like. We can be powerful, we can be weak, we can be girlish, we can be masculine, sometimes all within 24 hours or even 10 minutes, I've seen it. But for straight people, I think there's more of a script to follow usually, maybe a, a small number of scripts to choose from. In some societies that I've grown to know fairly well in recent years, not many scripts really for straight men. Um, there's daddy, maybe, there's husband, there's worker, and that's about it, really. And at the same time, as you talk about the importance of being uh, childish or childlike, uh, you also have some sort of quite uh, firm strictures about what it is to grow up. It's, it's to, to avoid chatter. Uh, and, and you're very critical of, uh, of the, uh, uh, the speak, speaking about thing, meaningless things. Now, that seems quite an, an adult notion in some sense. Well, I think that triviality has its place, of course, because sometimes we just need to comfort ourselves. And triviality and talking about trivialities, it's just like eating a couple of chocolates, you know, to comfort ourselves at the end of the day. I think we can afford not to be deadly serious all the time. But I think that the thing about chatter as opposed to conversation is that I think it can sometimes empty us out. And the central thrust of the book, after all, is about the inner life. And I think that we are living in a chattering age. I think we are living in an age which is growing ever more shallow, actually, so that we are indeed chattering more than chatting or talking. Yet if we have no inner life, and this is after all my great point in this book, if there is no inner choreographed dance, then I really think that old age is going to be very difficult for us. So I don't walk around with my phone in my hand, for example, listening to other people talk to me or listening to chatter on the internet. I don't watch much rubbish on television, and occasionally I do. But I want to feed my inner life because that's what will sustain me as I grow older and more decrepit and more and more unable to live a rich outer life. I also think that it's an inner life which allows us to be creative because it's when the outer world meets the inner world that we start to find the words or the images or even the garden design that is going to articulate what happens when the outer meets the inner. You must, in the first instance, have an inner world. So, of course, I'm going to avoid, where I can, chatter. I agree with everything you said, except for the bit about uh, walking around hearing other people's voices in your ears. I, I feel as though I... I have a sort of deeper inner life as a result of constantly listening to audiobooks and podcasts. Uh, I just got through um, Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie across America uh, and found myself found that book sort of rattling round in my head for uh, for weeks after I'd finished it uh, and deepening my sense of, of inner life. So I feel as though the smartphone has paradoxically made maybe made me a little deeper in how I think about the world. Many people do, I think, but that's partly because you're a working man. I'm not. If I want to listen to that sort of thing, I can do that in the comfort of my own home, I suppose. Whereas you have to work. I never have to go out and work. So when I do go out, I want my eyes to be open 
looking at the world, really. I want to look at the birds. I want to look at things that I see in the pavement. I want to look at the faces that pass me. I don't want to be distracted from the world. I mean, I haven't got many years left in which to be in the world. And so if I'm going to listen to, well, I never listen to podcasts because I haven't worked out the technology. But if I'm going to listen to things on my little phone, I'll do it at home, I suppose. That's all. <laughs> and I love the way in which you uh, capture the notion of what an inner world uh, ought to be, an, an ideal inner world. You talk about a, uh, a room full of conversations that others would want to join. Not that you need to let others join them, but that it needs to be, your inner conversations need to be so good that others would want to join them. Well, you're defining friendship, aren't you, really, when you say that? Because what is friendship if not that, really? I know that in some cultures it's common to have utilitarian friendships. That is, I offer you this service and in return you offer me that service. But I'm not interested in those sorts of friendships. I'm interested in the sort of friendship which really is what you've just said. It's an exchange of selves, of vulnerabilities, of perceptions, of loves, of course of passions and it's in words although it doesn't have to be every moment in words but in order to have that you must be worth befriending mustn't you and some seem to forget that when they say i feel rather lonely i wish i had more friends well you have to be sorry to be so cruel but you have to be worth befriending you have to be you have to have some kind of inner life for someone to befriend. The fact that you both barrack for the same football team is a kind of mateship, I suppose, a word that I never use. Actually, that's the first time it's ever passed my lips. I think friendship is something quite <laughs> different. It's, mm, it's where two or three or five or seven, it can't be many more than that, selves intersect and give birth to all sorts of wonderful things. And I think that in old age, and I think this particularly having seen what happens in, in aged care facilities, in old age, a life without friends really is the nearest thing to death that I can imagine. In the book, I describe a particular old age facility in Hobart. I give it a different name, of course, don't want to be sued. But what smelt sour in that aged care facility was loneliness. The incredible loneliness, these old people in rooms, room after room after room along empty corridors, sometimes calling out to be taken home, people dying in these rooms, totally alone, no visitors. I went there five days a week for six months, no visitors ever to anybody. You know, this society, we put people in these small prisons, we incarcerate them there and let them mentally rot. And so the book is really an appeal to find a more villagey solution to how those we love, have loved, even those we're just very fond of, might want to live in old age. That is, they want to live, we want to live, I want to live amongst people. I don't want to live in a room amongst 140 or 280 other old crocs. Why on earth would I? <laughs> the last thing on earth an old person wants is to be with a lot of other old people. You want to be with people. There are, I believe, initiatives to make this possible in some Western countries, at least in Europe. But in Indonesia, where this book is partly set, Poor people simply do that by staying in their house, in the village, sitting on the front veranda, tossing over the road to the kiosk across the road, watching the world go by, talking to the people who walk by, the old, the young, the tall, the small, the crazy, the sane, the educated, three-year-old kids. That's what you want. You want to be in the world. Whereas St. Ursula's, as I call it, here in Hobart to me, was some sort of living nightmare. It was a place of torture, as far as I'm concerned. And I will do everything I can to stay out of that sort of place when I get to the point where someone has to look after me a bit. I think that we're very lucky we do have possibilities in Australia for being looked after at home. 
but we must um, emphasize that. I think we must amplify that as much as we can. There's a strain of Stoic philosophy that runs through the book. Uh, you uh, quote the uh, celebrity columnist Anne Landers saying that at age 20 we worry about what others think of us, at age 40 we don't care what they think of us, and at age 60 we discover they haven't been thinking of us at all. Uh, do you think that uh, that notion of uh, becoming a little more sanguine about others' views is, is critical to living well? Absolutely vital. And I'm quite seri serious when I introduce that quotation. I think that one of the glories of being older is that you stop caring. Now, that sounds as if you don't care anymore about the kids in Eritrea or about the situation in, in Yemen today. I don't mean that. I mean that you don't care as much about yourself. You are less serious about yourself. Indeed, your very sense of self, unless you're someone like, I don't know who would be someone with a very large ego. You did mention a couple actually earlier when you're talking about people writing about dying. They are huge e egos. Uh, Tolstoy had a huge ego. I think the best old age is when your ego starts not to get smaller, but starts to evaporate. And then you realize, actually, you don't care what they think. But not only that, no one cares about you, really, in the way that you thought they might. Your partner, but not even always your children. Your dog probably cares to some extent, but it's only one, two, or three people who can possibly care about you in the way that you had thought they might. And this is good. It doesn't matter. So when you talk to people who are 90, 95, 100, 105, the first thing they will often mention, there's an ABC series about this, is a sense of freedom. That's the word that everybody seems to use. You don't care. You don't like me? Then don't like me. Why would I care? I'm having a good day. I feel loved. I'm doing things that enrich me. Every day I'm enriched. Why do I care what you think about me? The line out of uh, the time of our lives that I was quoting to my 13-year-old son was uh, uh, that offence has to be taken. Uh, it's not enough just to give offence uh, and uh, it, it, it has to be taken on and then if you choose not to take offence then it just washes by. Uh, it's, um, it's easier to write than to, uh, than to perform but it sounds as though you found it easier not to, uh, not to take offence so much. Well, it doesn't always work. I mean, that's stoic, of course, since you mentioned stoicism. That's from stoic philosophy. But it does work. And when I read in the press or see on television, people taking offence all the time and people taking offence on other people's behalf. People are always taking offence on behalf of the LGBT something or other community, even though we ourselves are not taking any offence whatsoever or on behalf of some other minority, which is, in fact, not taking offence. It is a society of offence. I think that in those circumstances, the stoic advice is very sound. You simply say, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to take offence. You think that the way I live is deplorable? Please, think that. Enjoy your day. I'm fine. <laughs> I'm with other people who are fine. And there are more important things in the world, such as what is happening in Yemen. One of the things that's uh, clearly important to you is uh, having a strong interior life is your love of languages. I remember you, we talked last time about how you uh, basically treat languages as a hobby. Um, just, just run me through again the, the number of languages you, uh, you speak. Oh, well, I speak, speak Russian and French well, I think I can say. I mean, I've spoken them better in, in, when I was younger, but I speak them very well. Uh, most Frenchmen and Russians would agree. I'm learning Indonesian at the moment uh, and not speaking it well at all, but I have, I'm having the, a whale of a time learning it. I did German at school, I did Latin at school, I learned a bit of Finnish when I lived in Finland. One has to learn Polish to go to Poland because not enough people, at least in my day, spoke Polish. So I play with languages, with Spanish, with Italian, because my inner life, that's just me, was built, was woven, I suppose is the word, around some kind of core of language. It's the only thing I'm good at. 
I can't change a light bulb. I can't drive a car. I'm really appalling <laughs> at maths. I'm really quite good at language. So it's around that that I built my inner life. I made up my own language, which I still speak. I was going to ask you how K was coming along. Are you still the only speaker of K in the world? I am. I'm the only speaker. There will never be another speaker. But uh, as you might remember, there is a whole land that goes with the language. And this is an inner life which serves no purpose except to create a me. And that is the most important creation in any kind of project of creativity. You can't, as I think this book tries to suggest through an Indonesian artist, you can't go out and create something, paint a painting or design a garden or whatever it might be, take photographs creative, creatively. Really, you have to decide to create a new self. And that new self will open its mouth or take up a brush or take up a camera and create. And I suppose language helps me to create a self each time that I try to speak Indonesian or go back to my made up language and land. I'm creating a self. It doesn't help the world particularly, except that I suppose it makes this particular member of the human race stronger and more fun to be with. It's a something. Well, there are languages that, uh, that have been made up and, and caught on. I'm thinking of Klingon, for example. Uh, will there be a, a dictionary of K at some stage? I did actually start to write uh, a dictionary when I thought I was important. And I thought, oh, you know, a biographer might like to see that. But now I realise that I'm not important at all. I've given up on that particular project. There probably won't be a biographer. And if there is, the biographer can do all that work herself. I'm content just to potter now and devote the energies I've got to other sorts of projects, really. I, I'm under no illusion about the place that I occupy in the world. I really am not. You talk about the importance of uh, having a list of, uh, of uh, a happiness list. Uh, what, what role does a happiness list play? Did you think that sounded like good advice, by the way? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, uh, I think uh, otherwise it's so easy to let the urgent crowd out the important and the, the value of lists is typically to remind us of what matters uh, in the face of uh, more urgent, less important tasks. Yes. I, I mean, it's a recent idea of mine that one should write these things down. You should sit with yourself one morning and simply list two or three things which are fundamental to your sense of being fulfilled, which is what I mean by happiness. Actually, at the beginning of the book, I use the word happiness when I mean contented as well as happy. At the end of the book, you'll remember, I, I tried to separate those two notions. And, and happiness is something very internal, it comes from inside, it comes from contemplating your well, your sense of who you are, I suppose, and the things that you love. Whereas happiness is something that, that bursts upon you like, like a storm. It's, it's a detonation. And I think that it helps if you can write down two or three, three things that make you happy. I mean, it could be anything. It could be mm, collecting toy soldiers. It's not for me to say or anyone else to say to you what it might be. For me, it really would have something to do with travel, I have to say. Travel makes me ecstatic. I go past Hobart Airport quite a lot on the way to the coast, and mm. it, it grips my heart when I see no, pl no planes there, and I know that I won't be going to Hobart Airport for a long, long time. That was my great joy. Just the smell of Hobart Airport, all that kerosene made me happy. It's when I travel that I recrystallize as somebody else many, many, many times. It is, the mo it is the happiest thing that I can do. Some people are made happy by food or by cooking. When you watch Nigella Lawson, you get the feeling this, this really makes her happy. It makes her ecstatic. It doesn't make me ecstatic. Um, eating is something I do because I have to, to stay alive. Travel and languages 
Is there anything else? There probably are one or two other things that I haven't managed to define. Music is very common in people my age, people with my particular social background. They go to concerts, they used to collect CDs, they listen to music now, of course, in, in, um, through their earphones, and their inner life is built around that. And if they don't have music, they become quite desperate. But it will always be very individual. People have their, well, gardening is another thing that makes people very, very happy. But I think it helps to write these things down. And then you can ask yourself the question sometimes when somebody says, why don't you come and have lunch with me? You can think to yourself, why would I really? No, you go and have lunch by yourself. It has nothing to do with my happiness list. Yes, there's a uh, Cuban poet who, uh, who says that uh, by age 40, uh, a man must have uh, had a child, planted a tree and written a book. Uh, and uh, I'm struck by the way in which your, your, fo your focus is, uh, is much more on uh, the exploration of, of the world outside. You know, the, the Cuban poet's three things could, could essentially be, uh, be done on, in, in, the, in the one house, uh, whereas you want to explore the world and, and also you talk so much about the importance of friendship, uh, of finding souls you love as your own soul. Yes, well, if love isn't in there somewhere in the mix, then anything that I say becomes senseless. It was Carl Sagan, is that how you pronounce his name? S-A-G-A-N, the um, astrophysicist. I've always said Sagan, but I, I think he wouldn't be offended. He said, you know, when you look out at the universe, you realize that the only thing that is worth anything in the world, when you look at the infinitude of the universe and your total insignificance, your absolute nothingness, is love. And he used that very simple word that has so many meanings. And it's true. And I mean, it's hardly my wisdom, but it's the wisdom that stays with me. I have to have someone to love and I have to feel to some extent loved in return. And it can mean many different things. Now that I understand a little bit more about Javanese culture, I can see how my English language notion of love or even French notion of love is um, quite one-sided in a way in that other cultures offer other kinds of uh, ideas about how you can love and be loved in a satisfying way. But to go back to what you just asked me about, I want to get out in order to enrich what's inside. I mean, I'm going out in order to bring it back inside myself. And I need variety. If I couldn't have it, if I couldn't walk, then I would have to do without it. I would have to travel around my own room and I would have to travel looking at the spines of all my books and perhaps rereading some of them and bringing people up and Zooming nowadays with them. But I can still travel, I think. And so as soon as the coronavirus gets tired of haunting us all, I'm going to do it again. And you also uh, talk about things that, uh, that should be avoided in, uh, in living, uh, living a good life and in ageing well. Uh, you, uh, you talk about having run out of bullshit. Uh, how does one run out of bullshit? And uh, uh, how, do, how do we make that happen earlier? Yes, yeah, difficult, isn't it, really? I mean... Um you're still at the age when you're surrounded by bullshit and you're breathing it in every day and perhaps even spouting some, I don't know. I, I, I can't follow what you say. <laughs> but when you're young, you need it really because if you didn't have it, you probably would just sit down and either shoot yourself or go to sleep, perhaps do nothing for the rest of your life. You need some bullshit to, to motivate you, to keep you going. You have to believe in God or in government or in um, the importance of the human project or you have to believe that we will overcome, I don't know, uh, global warming. You have to believe in things. Well, as you get older, you sort of realize that actually you've probably been led up the garden path on most of the projects that you have given yourself to. I don't, is the right word resile? Is that the right word? From the things that I gave myself to. I did that in good faith and they gave me something. But at my stage in life, no, I don't in particular accept the bullshit that politicians dish out to us every day of the week in the newspaper, even in The Guardian, I would have to say, and on the ABC and on SBS. And I don't buy the bullshit that 
orthodox religion dishes out to us. I don't wish to insult anyone, but of course I would say it's up to them whether or not to accept that as an insult. I just think that those particular scripts make slaves of us and we have to be rebels, at least inside. If I lived in Belarusia, of course, I couldn't be a rebel on the outside, but on the inside, we must all our lives if possible. Yes, there's very high returns to certainty and confidence in politics and uh, very low rewards to, to nuance, uh, to saying, well, here's what I think, but then again, here's the reasons I might be wrong. Yes, I mean, a politician can't function like that. Um, our system would make it really impossible and you would be uh, leapt upon by the hordes which don't want nuances. They simply want you to agree with them because they know they're right. I do understand the problems with this. They are enormous problems. But when you meet a politician with integrity, it strikes you. I mean, it's like seeing the Virgin Mary or something it's, uh, in sunset being struck by a sunbeam. You really can't believe that you're seeing this. It happens so rarely because you can see them every night on television being asked a question, delving inside themselves and producing a script. And you just really despair that they will ever just say what they honestly believe. The system doesn't allow it. Does it matter? It's not the most important thing. I think the, a more important thing is to identify the people who are really running the world, and that mm -hmm. isn't the politicians. And that is very difficult to do because they own the <laughs> places where we can talk about who really owns the world and is running it. From my point of view, the world has deteriorated since I was young, but I know that from other points of view, that's not so. We all live physically at a much higher level than we used to, whether it's mentally at a higher level. I avoid the word spiritually, but many people would use the word spiritually here, culturally. I'm not at all sure. I'm not sure that we actually have not grown more and more shallow and are not living through a degenerate mm, historical period, actually. And when I read Edward Said talking about uh, late style in certain artists. He was talking about Beethoven mostly, probably incorrectly. I don't know enough about Beethoven as a specialist to really comment. He talked about the mm, disappearance of history and meaning from the work of many artists and their concentration on form. And I think that that's happening, not necessarily in individual lives, but in in our culture. I think it's becoming a culture of interchangeable forms, forms that have very little to do with history, have few references to history and to what happened in history so that we have ended up, this is the pinnacle of that particular, um, what would you say, drift? We have ended up with Trump. Uh, who's uh, gone for at least, uh, at least for the next four years, but, uh, but I think your, your broader point is, uh, is spot on. And one of the reasons I started the Good Life podcast, uh, Robert, was a sense that those conversations about how to live well uh, were rarer now in an era of uh, ch where church going has, uh, has declined so markedly and, and other, other spaces haven't emerged where we talk about the, the sorts of issues that you delve into so beautifully in your book. Uh, you talk, about, talk too about the importance of uh, uh, getting rid of clutter uh, and the, uh, the, the damage that clutter can, uh, can do to a good life. It seems as though you're as critical of clutter as chatter. What's wrong with it? Well, they're the same thing, I suppose, aren't they, really? What's wrong with clutter? You uh, can't think if you live in a cluttered space. You spend too much time and too many resources on acquiring more clutter. So I'm suggesting a Japanese solution, which is to have just enough plus a little bit, which is what I feel I more or less have. And I'm fortunate enough to have it in Battery Point in Tasmania. Uh, if you have that in a suburb of New Delhi, it's perhaps not quite so attractive. But in Battery Point in Tasmania, of course, it's fabulous because you're living an uncluttered life in beautiful surroundings. So this frees up your mentality. And I wanted to say, since you mentioned religion, I think religion is very important. I don't 
uh, hold to any of the orthodox scripts. But I think it gives us the vocabulary. And that's perhaps partly what you meant. It gives us the concepts. It gives us the tools to deal with the things that are really important. And I'm very grateful for the part that religion has played in my life. And actually, I don't know if you're allowed to say this, I'm grateful that it was Christianity, to be quite honest. I think there is something about Christianity in particular, which gives you, even though I don't now believe its message as being a sort of truth narrative, a kind of thrust in the world and a care for the world, despite the behavior of Christians in the Middle Ages and through history for that matter. In fact, many of the Christians I see in, in The Guardian every morning are people of whom I disapprove profoundly in terms of their morality and their actions. But there's something about Christianity, even though I spend a lot of my time in Muslim majority places, something about Christianity that I think is deeply good, I have to say. I just don't believe it's deeply true, that's all. Yes, you look at the uh, the role of um, the English uh, Christian, Christians in uh, in ending the slave trade, for example, that uh, uh, the, the the Wilberforce uh, uh, inspired passions there, and, and that seems to be the best of the of the faith, uh, as distinct from some other religions that advocate more of a, a turning away from the world. Well, Buddhism certainly has been a great disappointment in terms of environmental policy. Buddhists tend to be focused on breaking the cycle of rebirth. Well, that's all very well, please break it. But until you've broken it, look after the world a little bit, I would say. I don't find Islam appealing as a metaphysical system, I have to say. Although there are things about Central Java, for example, that I enjoy when I'm there. But as a metaphysical, metaphysical system, it seems to be a bit of a grab bag to me of all sorts of Middle Eastern notions. I'm a Protestant by, what is the right word, by descent, and wrote a book about André Gide, who was a famous and indeed scandalous French Protestant. And when I wrote that book, as I was writing that book, I investigated French Protestantism and my own Protestantism. And I think the wonderful thing about being a Protestant is that it's you who is responsible. You can't buy your way out of anything. And that was, of course, in a sense, Martin Luther, and I disapprove of Martin Luther as well, but that was Martin Luther's point, of course, that you should not be able to buy your way out. You must become good. And that's what I like about Protestantism and still like about it. I live with an atheist. I'm not an atheist. He is an atheist and quite a militant atheist. He is very, but he's a Protestant atheist and he is very good in a very Protestant way. And I had only known him for about 37 seconds when I first met him before I knew that he was a Protestant. You can just tell, or you used to be able to in the old days. Nowadays, I suppose nobody's anything and you can't tell anything. But in the old days, you could. It was an attitude to life and to what you deserved, I suppose, and could achieve, how you might go about doing it. It's so interesting that uh, you're we're spending this this uh, time on talking about religion, um, because you, you quote at one point in the book, uh, Cicero is saying that philosophy is simply learning how to die. Uh, but in fact, I think a lot of modern philosophy is uh, trying to keep on extending and extending and taking us into uh, increasingly obscure questions. Uh, and, and I guess there's a point Alain de Botton makes, uh, makes quite a bit, uh, that really the, the ch central challenges of life uh, have less to do with uh, permutations on the trolley problem than the, uh, the, the, the difficulty of being as nice to one's friends and spouse as you should, uh, the challenge of allowing unjust criticism to, uh, to roll off your shoulders, you know, simpler but harder questions that arise every day rather than once a decade. 
Well, that's absolutely true. It's true, though, and Alain Botton knows it perfectly well, that we all, if we think, have moments, sometimes whole afternoons, perhaps even a week now and again, when we do think about more profound things about why we're here and are we, in fact, here, and uh, is there a here? These are things which all sorts of people do think about. I mean, taxi drivers and, and um, people who drive buses and peasants in central Java who do nothing but um, grow rice. It's surprising how many people do think about these things, but you're right. We've got to sort out what is, I suppose, called ethics, really. Um, ethics, unfortunately, got overtaken by morality, which, as Martin Amos says, is really all about sex. Ethics is far more important than morality, I think, and can indeed embrace morality if you wanted to in that Martin Amos sexual sense. We really have to get some of those things straight in our minds because I don't think that politicians are doing it for us. Few are going to read books by philosophers, very few, a minute proportion of the population. It has to be someone else. It has to be the Alain de Bottons of this world, really, who do that for us and encourage us to talk with our friends about these things. And people do, you know, to talk about their, the way they're going to relate to their grandchildren. As you will have noticed in this book, grandchildren, of which I have none, naturally, are very important to many people as they grow older, particularly women. And you have to work out, or many women have to work out, exactly what it is that gives joy and why it gives joy and what the responsibilities are and what they're not. These are basic aspect of a good life and this is what it's hard to talk about because of all the chatter about football or about what else do people talk about I don't know um, mostly it's football uh, something of zero importance actually. house prices and the weather I thought it was in Tasmania well <laughs> you can't talk about the weather now because it's too important um, that's not superficial anymore. That's now a dangerous topic. And you might find that you're talking to someone who doesn't believe in climate change and the whole thing becomes quite violent. No, it's, it's football or it's cricket, cars, I suppose, or even cars to the same extent. It's shallow. And sometimes you have to drag people back. I find that if I do say to someone, as I used to be able to do in Russia years ago, maybe now in Russia, it's not possible. But if I do say to someone, what about death then? What did you feel when your mother died? What did you feel? I don't mean sad, obviously you felt sad, but what did you feel? What were the thoughts you had when your mother died? Tell me, I want to know. There's no embarrassment at all. Conversation followed. Try that in Australia. There'll be a shutting down immediately. None of my business. It will be too revealing. It reveal vulnerabilities. That's a private matter. Australians are always claiming things to be a private matter. Private schmivet. What does private mean? Talk. Talk. That's what makes a good life. So Russians are better than Australians at uh, being able to go to, that, uh, to, to those big questions, to, to leap into the Tolstoy topics? Well, they were. As I say, I don't know if they still are, because I put it down partly to the fact that under the... A Soviet education system, because I was there during the Soviet times, under the Soviet education system, everyone read all the great writers. They, everyone read Tolstoy. Dostoevsky was a problem when I was there because, of course, he had very strong religious ideas and, and anti-socialist ideas. But you could read some Dostoevsky. And Turgenev and Pushkin and Chekhov, these writers, some Soviet writers, of course, everybody... It didn't matter who you met, they'd all read these writers and thought about these things. And I, I suppose, mixed with people who were educated, who were been to school and been to university usually. Naturally, we all mixed with our own group to some extent. But yes, in those days, it was easy. I suspect that like India now, today, it has been Americanized. I don't know what word they might use for that. But it's distressing in India to see how the culture is quite rapidly being Indianized and Indian ways of thinking are gradually being downplayed and turned into cultural theater. And I think that in Russia, probably to some extent that has happened. American culture is so 
all-consuming and imperialistic that it's very difficult to resist. Um, in Australia, of course, we simply don't resist it. We simply absorb it. And if think that if we pronounce it with an Australian accent, then it's ours. But of course, it's not ours. It's theirs. I originally finished reading uh, Sam Harris's Waking Up. And one of the things he does in that book is to uh, critique the notion that we can learn much from near-death experiences, uh, saying that uh, typically uh, people are uh, not, on, not in fact on the other side, otherwise they uh, probably wouldn't be remembering anything. Uh, you, uh, you're similarly dismissive about uh, uh, great lessons to be learned in the final moments, uh, describing uh, near-death experiences as, as being a bit like uh, Enid Blyton's Magic Faraway Tree, where a bunch of uh, young children are allowed up to the uh, above the clouds, and uh, uh, lo and behold, they discover that there's uh, lands with lots and lots of uh, candy and fun uh, fun amusement rides. Uh, is is your view that uh, that really we can't learn too much at the end? Well, yes, until you convince me otherwise, that's more or less my view. I think we should, um, you and I, be clear about the fact, for the sake of the listeners, that by near-death experience, we really mean the experience that people appear to have or claim to have after they have technically died. That is how we use the word near-death experience in English. It doesn't just mean that, you know, you nearly died. We simply say, I nearly died. I have died twice, as my readers know. I've talked about it in an earlier book. I mentioned it briefly here and did not have a near-death experience. I saw nothing. Um, in, I wasn't there. I mean, I had the same experience that anyone would have when they have um, uh, an anaesthetic, really. Um, there is simply nothing there. Until you convince me otherwise, as far as I know from my reading, there is no evidence, let alone proof, that anyone has had an experience that can be verified until it can be verified. I mean, we have neurosurgeons who've had this sort of experience, they claim. Until it can be verified, I have no reason to believe it. I'm not hostile. I simply have no reason. And at the heart of this book, that sentence is actually in the book, is this notion that until I have reason to believe, R-E-A-S-O-N, because I go back to the Enlightenment, that's where my roots are, until I have reason to believe otherwise, I don't. Well, Robert, you say in, in this book that uh, life is about creating yourself and there's a, a wonderful texture and tapestry from the, from the work that I felt uh, really enriched that sense of what it was to live well and to, and to age well. Uh, so thank you for writing the book and thank you for sharing your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. I really enjoyed talking to you. It was great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. Andrew Lee in conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Graham Simpson, Morris Gleitzman and Nicky Johnson. On the theme of living well, Nick Terrell and I have a new book out titled Reconnected, a community builder's handbook. We appreciate getting feedback on this podcast, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really helps others find the show. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.